Okay, well, uh, last week we talked about Thessalonians, and today we're going to be talking about Thessalonians. Uh, living with bated breath. I, you know, I had to look that word up, by the way. Bated breath, I've heard that before. Waiting with bated breath. Bated, I always think of bait. Like fishing bait. Well, where else do most people look it up? Yeah. Right, uh, it was either dictionary.com or Wikipedia. So. And? It just means, you know, uh, anticipation, waiting with anticipation. You know, that I don't remember. But it, I think it, it must have been dictionary.com because they do a little bit of uh, etymology. I think I said that word right. I don't know. It comes from the Latin roots for earthworm. I don't know. <laughs> Get it? Bait, earthworm. Okay, thank you. Okay, anyways, I, uh, oh, so I, we start out with a little quote here from Clement of Alexandria. He's a really early guy who was, um, yeah, second century. <laughs> we should sleep half awake. A man who is asleep is not good for anything any more than a dead man, or a who man is dead. Which reminds me of a, a movie with Johnny Depp. <laughs> Has anybody ever seen Dead Man? Yeah, you don't, you don't have to, but anyways. It has to do with this. I mean, that's, I, I, yeah. Anyways, therefore, even during the night, we should rouse ourselves from sleep often and give praise to God. Blessed are they who have kept watch for him, for they make themselves like the angels who we speak uh, of as ever watchful. So, um, waited with bated breath, this understanding that we are completely engaged with what is happening. I, um, but before we get to that, uh, did uh, anybody read Thessalonians? Okay, excellent. You know, I, I realize I have, I, I have last week's teaching outline in front of me, so um, didn't we have an extra one handy that I might want to use? Just stay on top of it. I'll pick one up. All right, so uh, did anyone read it? Yeah. Yeah, this is the one. Okay. Um, what did you think of it? I mean, what, what stood out? Anything interesting, something that you never really thought of before, or was it pretty boring, or... Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oftentimes, yeah. Uh, imitate me. I mean, yeah. Oh, I actually, I mean, we read that this morning. It, it's first introduced in whatever the scripture is here. Um, boy. Well, anyways, it's, it's in the first. All right, here we go. So that you become an ex okay, example and imitation. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Uh, so that he introduces it, but then he makes explicit reference to himself. Yeah, we actually will talk about that uh, in the next several weeks um, because, it, yeah, it's all over, this idea of imitation or imitate me. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk that way. 
However, it's very important that he actually does because contrary to the way we think of things, if we were to talk about that, everyone would think of us like me as a phony or kind of, you know, self-promotion. Back then, if a teacher didn't talk that way, he would be a phony. Isn't that funny? It, it, it's backwards because uh, um, like rabbis, even at that time, the one thing about Paul, like we're, we're not going to talk about that today, but it's still in the background, is that Paul, who obviously has a very Jewish background, is preaching to a group of people who have a very Greek or, or non-Jewish background. And so some of the things that he speaks of, like imitation, have a Jewish background, but also have a Greek background. So Socrates, philosopher, had students, and part of his teaching with students would be to be like he is, or imitate him. Because that's, that's, you know, that, that's a good student. See, today, now students mainly are what they know, not how they act. But back then, and especially with rabbis, you said what he said, and you did what he did. Because belief and life are not separated. So for Paul to talk about imitating himself, he's actually talking about what he believes. Anyways, so yeah, that, that's a great thing. Okay, excellent, excellent. That was very interesting. Barbara. Well, yeah, but that's, that, so he says, follow me and the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so the question would be, is the Sermon on the Mount primarily about Christians or about Jesus? And we'd always have to say first primarily about Jesus, right? So... Christians who follow the Sermon on the Mount are precisely imitating Jesus. So there we go. It's he. Uh, I don't. I yeah. You're right. The word for imitation isn't precisely used by Jesus. Krista. Right. So oh yeah okay good. So hey now we're quite we're kind of putting it in the context already. We don't have to do a Bible study about it. This is perfect. Yeah, not only that, so like your children, when, um, yeah, so, so when your children grow up, everyone thinks, oh, you're just like our father, you're just like your mother, whatever. Well, it's because they imitate. Now, sometimes they do it consciously and unconsciously, right? So, I mean, I think, I think about it in terms of like me being a pastor, learning, mentor, men- mentee. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, like, so, for instance, those of us who might know Norman Nagel, you would know who is a disciple of his, or one who's been, you know, a mentee of his. Who, who would you know? I'm Mary's shaking her head. We all know who it is, okay? Because he, te- he teaches just like him. Well, I don't, I don't know, not so much anymore, but he... he Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm talking about Pastor Bruzek. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's what, uh, yeah. Well, and I, th- I think for, I think for, for, well, and the thing is, so that would, I would think that would be a compliment, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the thing is that as we, as we read the Apostle Paul, it's very hard for us to, I mean, it, it, we have to take a long time to kind of put ourselves in this perspective. Um, 
Because in an age of self-promotion and self-centeredness, it's just very easy to kind of fall into that kind of nonsense when Paul talks that way. And, and, and like, some, like uh, some commentators would even, you know, even acknowledge that and say, well, eh, Paul's probably a little bit self-promoter. Because uh, in, well, in here, in Thessalonians, but especially like in um, Corinthians and Galatians, uh, Paul is defending himself against these kind of false prophets who are trying to undermine Paul by saying, Paul, you all know who Paul is. He's the guy who what? Murders us. You can't take this guy seriously. You know, so Paul's always defending himself. So some commentator said, you know, this guy, he has got his self-esteem issues and has to... Oh, yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, right. And, but I would say that's like a different issue than related to the imitation discussion. But yeah, you're right, absolutely. I mean, any normal person would have a tough time believing him, right? Yeah. Because he killed, like, your family. Okay, I- anything else in your reading of Thessalonians that stood out? Rachel. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's great. It should, yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. That's kind of what Pastor Bruzek and I are going for. Um, uh, the uh, the other thing is that um, uh, well, and as we, as we keep going along, we'll find out that I, I really believe that Th- Thessalonians is really a great template for just everything. Not only the Saint John does, but I would think that uh, kind of the Western Church really needs to be about. So, because we'll, we'll notice a lot of similarities between the the cultures. That Paul's preaching in. So, cool. All right, anything else? Yes. Oh, yeah, right. Right. Yes. Right. That's great. Actually, that, that's 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 really good. In fact, um, yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. My ESV. In certain passages in the New Testament, they will typeset differently whether it be like an Old Testament quotation or maybe some poetic. However, uh, you know, some of that is left to the, the publisher. And I think that would be cool, yeah, because it's a list. It's a list of things. And when we list things, we normally don't put them in a paragraph form. We put them like, you know, yeah, bullet points. 
So that's cool. That, that, well, that, that would kind of lead us into remembering a few things about as we study Thessalonians is that we need to read the Bible like a love letter. And I think as we spend more time with Thessalonians, then maybe we'll, you know, as long as we intentionally read this, we'll notice some of these things that are kind of painfully obvious uh, uh, only when we kind of slow down and pay attention. So, uh, okay, yeah, so I think we covered everything that we need to remember. Paul's excited about Thessalonians. He wants to make sure that they kind of remain the way they are. And then in order for them to remain the way they are, kind of joyful in the midst of afflictions, faithful, loving, and hopeful, Paul directs their minds towards uh, this eschatology, which we'll talk about what that word means. So I, I brought up the image of waiting at the airport for the return of your loved one. And so this is the frame, this is kind of our stance in life as we read Thessalonians, is that the Thessalonians are very uh, excited for the return of Jesus. But the return of Jesus is kind of covered in this term called eschatology. Eschatology basically just means kind of the study of the end times or the destiny or, uh, of humans and history. Uh, now, the thing is, though, is when we, uh, in kind of our current state, now, this was painfully obvious about 10 years ago when the Left Behind series came out. But when we talk about eschatology or end times, oftentimes, uh, often we either kind of, like, shy back from it or we're super obsessed with it when I say we kind of Western culture and those who are into the Left Behind series they're really obsessed with it although in a wrong way and and, and in response to that oftentimes people are just like I don't want to talk about it because it's weird that you know we, we don't have enough uh, vocabulary to really deal with what what's being said so the thing is, though, when it comes to es eschatology is that you can't read the Bible, and especially the, the Gospels, without thinking about eschatology because it is a thread that, w that weaves the picture of Jesus. And, for instance, in Matthew like chapter 25, huge eschatology chapter. Matthew 13, huge eschatology because it's about the end times. And like Matthew, uh, Mark 13, they're walking to, uh, by the temple, and the disciples are enraptured by these buildings, and, and Jesus is like, see all this stuff? It's going to come crashing down. Well, when is this going to happen? Okay, you have a whole chapter devoted to eschatology. Um, and so, so we got to kind of pay attention to it. And I think, I, yeah, to ignore eschatology would be like selecting raisin toast for breakfast and then eating around the raisins. You know, you, 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 we just have to be able to, 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 to deal with it. And the reason why we're doing this is kind of related to where we're going. So we're going to talk about eschatology, and then we're going to talk about ethics, or our life, which will, will bring up imitation in that. And because how we see the future will directly affect our present and how we live. And then how we live, according to Thessalonians, will probably come into conflict with the culture around us. So we're going to talk a little bit about the conflict, and then we're going to talk about culture I introduced some of that stuff last week in terms of like the gods that were active in Thessalonica, um, and then and then based on that, like how do we our mission, like you know, so we'll kind of come full circle there.
So it's important that we, we kind of lay down the frame, framework of eschatology. Now, which means then we got to talk about the parousia, another weird big word, resurrection of the dead, uh, which deals with what Holly asked about, and the final judgment in heaven and hell, which nobody likes talking about hell. So some of, some of these topics are um, very enriching, but also at the same time, they're a little bit intimidating. All right, so what's the parousia? The parousia is the coming of Jesus. And in Thessalonians, we have, um, actually, I, I didn't write down, chapter 1, verse 10, but 110, 219, uh, 219, 318, uh, 313, 415, and 523, they all use the word parousia. But, uh, but the topic is already woven already in chapter 1. So it's just the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. However, when we learn about the second coming of Jesus, we'll hear echoes of another coming of Jesus, and that would be his first coming. Now, the apocalypse. Why did I put that there? Because when we think of end times, we think of this apocalypse. And so it's kind of a convoluted term because it's in contemporary. I mean, we just said there was a uh, movie with uh, Seth Rogen, I think, in it that was about the end of the world or end times or something like that. Some very strange apocalyptic movie. I have not watched it. I'm sure it's pretty ridiculous, if not offensive. But it just kind of demonstrates how like this, this end of the world business has really captured our minds. 1999, obviously that was a big year for end of the world type of nonsense. So, um, but Paul uses actually the word apocalyptic, although it doesn't get translated here, um, in terms of like dualism. So at the end of the world, there'll be the wheat and tares. There's going to be the good, the believers, and unbelievers. That's just the way it's going to be. And then there will be a judgment, and then the imminence, meaning like this is happening. This could happen anytime. We don't know. Now, the parousia is apocalyptic like it is in the creed. I don't know if you guys noticed. Did anybody think about that when you at the end of the second article of the Creed? Did you notice that? So we actually talk about it all the time, but we just don't know it. Judge the living and the dead. So it's something, it's, it's, it's a huge part of our faith. But we, we kind of just gloss over that part and then get to the Holy Spirit really quick. So it's important for us. Okay? Oh, uh, so now we have to talk about the rapture. The rapture is used. That's actually a, a Latin term, but it's from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Uh, it, it, in the ESV, it's caught up, but it could be like snatched up. Or you could just put raptured. You can use that as a verb. Um, do Lutherans believe in the rapture? Yes and no. Okay, the rapture. Uh, simply put, the rapture is Jesus's. Uh, it's, it's the event where we meet Jesus in the air. Now, what exactly does that all mean? Well, we'll get to it. So we do believe in the rapture. However, we don't believe in the rapture like Tim LaHaye does. And there's kind of three kind of three positions on here. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Lutherans are kind of like the third one. Premillennialism is uh, that's the that's the Tim LaHaye business where 
there's going to be this secret rapture and all the Christians will be gone one day. Maybe only their clothes will be left behind. Uh, and then there's going to be, a millennial is a thousand years, so there's going to be this apocalyptic war and then a, a thousand years, and then Christ will come again. So there's like, it's kind of a confusing thing. That, that comes out of like the 19th century. Scottish guy, Derby. He, uh, anyways, that's, uh, that's wrong. Um, but I, I don't want to spend a whole time, a lot into it, because it's very convoluted. You spend a little time with it, and you'll realize that um, like certain parts of the Bible are only for Jews, and then some are for Christians. And you're kind of like, what? wait a second. And who decides that? Well, that guy did. I mean, so um, it's, it's uh, yeah. So it doesn't take the Bible as a whole. Okay. Postmillennialism is uh, the idea that Christ will come after kind of peace and harmony is on earth for a thousand years. And then Christ will come. So uh, that would be like a motivator to work for peace and justice. And certain denominations are like that. In fact, Wheaton College, the founder, Jonathan Blanchard, he was a post-millennialist. That's why he, for Christ and his kingdom. They're not like that anymore, but I mean, you can, I mean, so it's around us. We don't hear much about that view anymore. But then uh, amillennialist is that there's no thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign. It's a, it's a symbol. It's from the book of Revelation. Sorry, I should have started with that. And there's, there's a lot of problems when you take the book of Revelation uh, literally like a narrative or a story. I mean, because, well, just go ahead and read it and you'll, you'll know what I mean. So you have to understand that that's a type of literature. It's actually apocalyptic literature, which is a way of understanding that literature is completely different than, you know, reading the newspaper. So, anyways, so the rapture is, is this event being caught up with Jesus or meeting Jesus in his second coming. And so Lutherans do believe it, but we don't believe it like Tim LaHaye does. So, what to talk about? Uh, or I should say, why talk about it? Well, the, why talk about it? Because it's very important. The ongoing experience of Satan, sin, and death make it all the more important that we speak of the end times or the eschaton, eschatology, when everything that Jesus accomplished in his first coming is brought to its visible consummation. That means there will come a point in time where sin, Satan, and death are done completely. And all, the, and all what that means, then disease and uh, brokenness and uh, you know, war, all that's going to be done. See, if this is not stress, many are left wondering what difference the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has made in the world where hate, tragedy, war, bloodshed, and death remain all around us. Uh, so this is directly related to hope. You need to, you need to have the end times in perspective in order to have hope. So let's walk through Thessalonians. We're just going to walk through Thessalonians. It's, it's only one page turn for me, so hopefully this won't be too bad. I, uh, so we'll, we might move real quickly. There's passages that are, are kind of more in depth than others, but I, I literally wanted to show kind of every passage in the Thessalonians that deals with the eschaton or eschatology. 
to really demonstrate that you can't read Thessalonians without thinking about the end times. Okay? It first comes up, though, in chapter 1, 9, and 10. Um, so, oh, turn to Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, if you hadn't already. Okay, so, uh, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Uh, they themselves report, meaning these other churches report on you, the Thessalonians, and how they turned from idols to living the true living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the, the idea of turning from idols to the living God is directly related to then this waiting and serving. So already at the end of the beginning of the epistle, Paul's drawing upon the end to inform the present. Now, if you take a look at the, the uh, it's serving, and I think it's wait. So, to serve and to wait, it's the way it's translated, but the verb is actually infinitive, meaning it's uh, n not ending. So, you could say continually serving, continually awaiting. So, there's a daily tension already in the Thessalonians that Paul's describing as formative of the Christians serving in the present while kind of waiting for the future deliverance. So based on their repentance from idols to the living God, now they live in this world where it involves the past because it says here, whom he raised from the dead. So you have the past informing the present, but you also have the future to wait for his son from heaven informing the present. So it's kind of an odd thing to think about, is that the past, which has happened, which is certain, informs the present. That kind of makes sense, right? There's things that happen in our past that directly relate to our present and why we're here today. But what Paul is also saying is that there is a certain future which is not based on what's happening now, which is based on this back here that's certain but is also informing your, your current state. So time, I mean, that, that's a hard for us to think about time because we think very linear. But this is, also, this is very circular too. Holly. Yep. Right. Yeah. What's what's with all this wrath talk? Yeah. Blah. Yep. Now, yeah. So this would go. Uh, this is actually into the next one too. We could just go ahead and just go. Uh, chapter two, thirteen through sixteen is um, at the end of verse 16, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So there's two mentions of wrath. Interesting. So the wrath to come. Uh, well, first of all, just to make note, this is an alien work of God, which is the way of saying that this is not what God likes to do. However, this is what he needs to do when, not, not need, yeah, in order, to, in order to be honest or true, uh, so the wrath, what, oh, for, let me back up, sorry. Wrath, we think it in terms of what? Emotions, right? Not necessarily cause, causal? Okay. Well, that's part of it, that's right. 
But wrath, uh, so we always think, though, of hell in terms of God punishing, right? And, and there's like this, this, this emotional attachment to it. However, for instance, I say to my son, we don't have cigarette lighters anymore, but so my dad used to say to me, Marcus, do not touch the cigarette lighter. It will burn you. Okay. I can believe him, which all makes sense, and which is wonderful. I won't face the flames of the cigarette lighter. Or I can unbelieve him. And when I unbelieve him and I touch it, guess what I'm going to face from my father? His wrath. But his wrath is, uh, well, I can remember very clearly, <laughs> is not anger. It's consequential. I told you that, and this is what this means now. And I had, I had, I, yeah, I had consequences to my unbelief. <laughs> so that would be a, probably a more helpful understanding when we read the wrath to come, is that there is just, there's consequences to unbelief. You either can not touch the cigarette lighter, or you can. But if you can, this is what, this is what will happen. And you can believe it or unbelieve it. But that, that's, just, that's just the way it is. Now, you might not like it. I mean, that, that's where people kind of question God and say, well, I just don't like the idea of hell. And so I don't want it. And that's what some people do with hell. They just, they get rid of it. Um, because we're, we're projecting on God these kind of emotions or like this nice guy attitude. Well, if he was really loving, then he would just put up with our sin. But what is our sin doing to us? Well, think about in terms of my analogy. It's burning me alive. We just, we kind of think, we, we still have a little part of us that believes that when I touch the cigarette lighter, it's not going to hurt me. It's actually going to be pretty cool. Because it looks so interesting. And I got to touch it. I mean, I, I think that's like, I think that's a that's a that's a fairly good analogy. I think of hell because hell is bur burning. I mean, the candle too. Like, I mean, you have kids, right, who are like enraptured, and they want to touch it. They get burned up. I mean, that's just it. I mean, that's that's I, I, you know we're all looking at like why would, why do you want to touch the candle? Why do you want to touch the cigarette lighter? It's I, there's something about it, right? It's awful for you though. I know, I can't, I can't, I, yeah, so, so the idea of the wrath to come is, is, is uh, hell. It's this judgment against unbelief. What we find out, though, in this Thessalonians is that the judgment against sin has happened where? On the cross. And, and Paul makes that point, is that the judgment against sin has already been decided. However, what have these people done to this message? Or not, not necessarily Thessalonians, but... Well, you know, maybe they're friends or people in their culture. They have said what? I don't believe you. And so they will face the wrath to come. What's, what's really helpful for us is to actually, uh, so that's, that's the kind of the end of verse uh, chapter 1. In verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, Paul kind of directly relates it to the Jewish uh, kind of uh, citizens in Thessalonica. Remember from Acts 17, right, they got run out of the synagogue. 
not all of them, but a lot of them. So, you know, well, yeah, right, the synagogue out of town, and uh, then they got beat up in, like, Philippi, and all this other, not, you know, bad things happened to them. Um, but what we find out, though, and I, I think I might have, yeah, so in John 3.18, I've always found this very helpful for me, John 3.18, uh, yeah, well, let's just, uh, let's take a quick look at it. Um, because I think this is helpful for us to kind of understand the judgment against the unbelieving world. Because, of course, we know 3.16, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, so that, that sounds right. That sounds like it's a little against what Thessalonians are speaking. However, verse 18 is helpful. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what Paul has done is that there is a wrath to come, but that wrath to come actually can be suffered in the present. So what Paul has at the end of chapter 1 is this future wrath, but at the end of chapter 2, it's a pre- or a, not the end of chapter 2, but at the end of verse 16 in chapter 2, a present wrath that's falling upon them. But it, it's the same wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's the consequences of unbelief. But, of course, what we're, where we're headed to is mission or witness is that the church in Thessalonica have what? The opportunity to tell them differently. Don't touch the cigarette lighter. Or you put it in the positive. Um, sit in the back and look out the window. Or, you know, just don't touch the cigarette lighter. <laughs> so, so that's the thing, though, is that the wrath to come, uh, it, it might have present realities. However, because of their opportunity of the day, which we probably won't get to today because that's in chapter 5, but Paul says, you're children of the day. But they're the children of the night at the same time. And Paul is making this point is that get the children from the night to live in the daytime. So you have the wrath to come, but now we have an opportunity to speak to them to uh, escape the wrath to come. Yeah, Krista. About hell? Yeah. Well, it, this would be, uh, there's two ways of saying the same thing. You can talk about the scariness of hell or the wonders of heaven. Jesus, for instance, a few weeks ago said, unless you hate your mother, hate your children, hate even yourself, you can't be my disciple. Absolute terms. There's no joking around. You need to hate your family. Okay. How do we all feel about that? I do not like that. I love my wife. I love my children. Jesus is telling me I should hate them? Okay. Jesus could have said the same. He could have said the same thing by saying, unless you love me above all things. However, which one do you... I mean, it it depends. Like, how how do you respond to these things? One, we might gloss over and rationalize. Well, I do love Jesus, but I really don't. The other one would say, I don't really hate my family, but I should. 
there, there's, a, there's this tension going on that Jesus talks in these ways that says the same thing, but in an order to... So you bring up hell. Hell is true. Hell is real. However, even based on this conversation right now, the word wrath conjures up all these false notions. And so, can we talk about something in the... Can we talk about the same thing, but in a different way? It's still truthful. I mean, honest and true. And so, that's, that's a that way of, of applying the gospel to kind of present circumstances. I would argue that over the last several decades, Christianity has been boiled down to a get-out-of-hell-free card. And so there's been an absence of the life of the Christian is lived in fear of hell, not in love towards neighbor and God. So I'm living my entire life to stay out of hell rather than living my life in order to love God and my neighbor. And so there's an emphasis where I think is, it's just not real helpful. I mean, the thing is, Martin Luther was like that. Martin Luther, uh, he, was, he was scared of hell, and so he lived his life trying to stay out of hell. And then he found the gospel. That didn't discount the reality of the devil, though, or, or the reality of hell. But his whole perspective, though, was towards love and certainty of heaven. So if I know the hell's back here, my question would be, why would, I, why would I concentrate on it? But it needs to be part of our conversation as we talk about those who might face the wrath to come. Holly. Right. That's exactly right. Right. And, and in fact, I mean, this is a great, yeah, that's right. Good, good job. Um, and the end, oh man, see, I, did I write this down? I meant to write it down. Um, I think this isn't, this isn't a small word. Yeah, oh, so turn to First Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Uh, this would be kind of the foil to what Holly just said. So, 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Verse 13. So that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What he, sa- what he doesn't say is at the coming of your death. So what's interesting is this, this, uh, this uh, end times is not actually directly related to your death. So the idea is that, I mean, that's, that's obviously part of it. That's for you personally. But I mean, there's this unending, I want to say unending, um, that's not right, this, this passionate desire for, for everyone to escape the wrath. So there's all these things in people's lives that say, hey, uh, you know, Repent and believe in the gospel. So, um, so the thing is, is that, um, you know, and, and there's kind of speculative theology where, uh, you know, based on First Peter, where Jesus goes and preaches to the souls in Gehenna, or prison, Hades, hell. Nobody knows exactly what Gehenna, but Gehenna is actually a literal place. But the way Peter uses it seems pretty symbolic. 
So Jesus is preaching to souls in, in hell? That, like, but there's a redemptive aspect to that whole passage. Very, very interesting speculative nature, not church dogma, so I wouldn't like put my hand on my heart and say I believe it entirely. But, there, but it, it's consistent with this notion that God is going to give you every chance that you need in order to turn from unbelief to belief. And maybe it might even spill over into, you know, even into death. Until that very last day, that very last day, when everything is done and over with. Yeah. Karin. Right. Yeah. I, so, yeah, so Karin has uh, her father. I, we, I think probably everybody can raise their hand and know someone very close to them that is an unbeliever. unbeliever. Um, so that's why I think Thessalonians is helpful for us, is how do we, how do we warn, oh, like Paul uses the word warn, or, or, or how do we share the gospel, the good news, in order to escape the wrath to come. And there's, there's several things, but the primary ones that will... Uh, We'll find out eventually. If you re- keep reading every week, by the way, keep reading because you'll you'll pick up on these things. Is that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is the primary driver in your witness to the good news? So what we do is we, uh, and that goes with uh, what Kirby said, the kind of the list of exhortations at the back, is that you know, these are things that we need to do. That this is what Christians do, and you know prayer. Uh, but even from the Thessalonians, they live a life that is that that speaks more than words. I don't know if you guys know, well, we'll we'll talk about that. But that first thing that we read in the cha- chapel, where Paul doesn't even need to make a report about what's happening. I mean, isn't that fascinating? Their reputation about what God is doing in 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 Thessalonica has gone now. Whether you actually believe that or not, everywhere. Paul uses the word everywhere. Viral. <laughs> yeah, right. It's gone viral. Hey, that's good. I like that. So, so the idea is that that um, so how do we how do we kind of reach out to these non-believers? Well, prayer, but it, it's ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, and we are given what we are to do, and that's all we can do. We can't do any more, and so that's why Paul says, "Keep vigilant, keep working, don't stop your day job." Because even in your day job, you speak of the hope that uh, Christ has given you in, in uh, the parousia and the eschaton and all that. So, um, yeah, that's, that, see, that's, good. That's, a, that's a good question, Karin, because I think we all have those people in our family. And we want to know how do we get them to escape the wrath to come. Um, and it's, it's a tension in one's personal soul. Where you say, I, I can only do this. I would love to like twist, like my you know like my family who are unbelievers. I'd like to twist their arms to finally say uncle, so they can believe, right? <laughs> but then we have to really realize: is that what I mean? Is that really belief in the first place? Um, and if it was, then we probably wouldn't want to be part of that Christian faith, anyways. So it has to be under faith. I mean, uh, freedom and love. Freedom of love has a great risk of being rejected. A pre-John, pre-John letter? 
That's right. Yeah, definitely a pre-John letter. Well, John, so, so yeah, so I, I, would add, I would just counter that, Karin, to say that John draws on a tradition that's already established. So John 3.18, right? That's what you're making reference to? So, so he, he would actually be drawing on, on a tradition that's probably introduced already from First Thessalonians, if not Jesus himself, which we'll find out. Well, yeah, so, okay, so I actually would counter is that Thessalonians, you have Paul, who's thoroughly Jewish, applying uh, uh, what, what we would say is kind of, well, this is uh, Messianic Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, or I would say, obviously, the Christian understanding of the Old Testament. He's applying, because uh, Paul doesn't have a New Testament to draw from for the Thessalonians. He's not making reference to a document, although that could be argued, perhaps. So the thing is, though, is that even if you only know the Old Testament, what you read in Thessalonians is actually in agreement with that. In fact, we will talk about that uh, when we talk about culture, is that we'll, we'll find out that there are allusions to the Old Testament throughout Thessalonians, even though Paul doesn't directly quote the Old Testament. Why would he do that? Well, because the, the pagans don't know the Old Testament, so it makes no sense to quote it. But the thing is, though, his framework is all thoroughly uh, Old Testament, whether it be from Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Those are the three main big prophets that inform Paul's discussion in Thessalonians. Right. That's right. So, so that actually relates to our discussion in terms of relating to our, our, our non-believing family is that pray pray that the Lord would do what he's going to do through his word but not only his word but his word that's in the lives of the Christian and that's why Paul says um, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so yeah that's exactly right so I, okay good we're, I think we're on the same page all right well, we ran out of time. Let's see, any more questions here, and then we'll just stop, and we'll, we'll come back uh, to these texts, because it's, it's actually important that we actually look at these things um, for a variety of reasons. But Jan. Well, I guess the other, you know, you were talking about how Jewish Paul yes. was also a Roman citizen. Right. Oh, absolutely. Which was he then could bring together right. to form Christianity. Yeah. You know, for someone to go in that doesn't understand the culture. Well, well not to form Christianity, but to articulate Christianity. Well, articul yeah, okay, good. Well, because, you know, s some people who don't believe the Bible think that Paul just took stuff from, like, the Greek religions and Jewish religions and kind of you know, stuck them together. Right. There was something bad going to happen to them. That's why That's right. they had to do Karma. It, you know, sacrifice their kids to, to God. Yeah, Molach. That's what they were doing. Right. You know, so that it's a matter of putting that into, into context. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're going to get to that because I think 
And so, like, for instance, you know, we a few years ago we talked about postmodernism around here at St. John. Well, that's because that's that's the pervasive culture. In fact, um, I uh, I get a magazine called Good Magazine. It's a very nice magazine. It comes out quarterly. It's good. It's so interesting because it's it's all about doing good, but completely devoid of any kind of theological underpinning. What I find interesting, though, is that some of the things they do, like so, I'm going to throw this out here. They uh, they are advocating um, writing postcards, and they're so it started in San Francisco, and there's some bad neighborhoods in San Francisco. And these people who are interested in doing good said, why don't I get people from this neighborhood to write nice things about the neighborhood and send it to random people throughout San Francisco? It's called the San Francisco Postcard Project. Um, and it's, it's, been, it's, kind of like, it's kind of an interesting little uh, project. Well, the thing is, though, this is, this is, this is what? What are they doing? Well, they're loving their neighbor, but they're evangelizing. They're evangelizing in word and deed, and then inviting people, hey, you should check this out. I'm like, holy smokes. I mean, but you see, you see that, I mean, through all this very interesting thing. So you have this whole notion of our culture today. Um, I mean, that, that's like a, that's an example of how I feel like they're doing a better job than the, sometimes the church is, just in terms of tar- articulating to the culture, I'm saying, not, not necessarily their acts of mercy or anything like that, because I, I think the church does the best. But, um, but just in terms of like connecting with the culture, I'm like, this is fascinating. It's such a wonderful, simple idea, but the reason why the church probably hasn't done it is because, what? Well, for better or for worse, we are kind of secluded into our church culture. I'm not advocating disregarding that because I think that's very helpful. <laughs> but um, how we relate to that. So Paul is is like that. I mean, he's like he's the kind of the epitome of how this guy is. He, even though he wasn't a hip dude, he was he's pretty nerdy. I think he was able to articulate to the culture in a way that no other Christian at that time could. And so that I would be advocating that for us. And I think St. John can do it actually. So don't be surprised in the spring if we have a St. John postcard project. Because I bet you you are surprised at how many people don't know anything about A, Lutherans, and B, St. John, even in the city of Wheaton. So, right. Yep. That place. That's right. No, no, it's 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 very interesting. So uh, so, anyways, um, okay. We didn't really t- we haven't uh, right. We talked about a lot of things today. Um, well, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.